Well, hello, church. If you would open to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. If you're new, we're studying through the Gospel of John. We'll make it to verse 19. We'll pick up where we left off last week. We'll read 19 through 24, and then we'll skip over uh, to 28 through 32. This is the Word of God. It says, The high priest then questioned Jesus about His disciples and His teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple and where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 28, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to him, Take him to yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was spoken, the word that Jesus had spoken. Uh, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And that, Lord, is what we must get to. Lord, we pray that in all that we study and discuss, that we make it to that reason for which you had to die. We pray you would make clear the purpose of your death and all these evil acts leading up to it. Uh, we pray, Holy Spirit, you be our teacher, you be our guide, you be the one to guide our minds and our hearts to what we need to hear from you today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My title is Hypocrisy, Traditions, and the Fear of Man. And uh, we'll mainly be talking about hypocrisy, but as we look at hypocrisy in this text, I think what we're going to see is traditions and the fear of men uh, begin to come out. Uh, I was listening to Charles Spurgeon, read by someone, because you can't listen to Charles Spurgeon anymore, uh, his, the sermon I was listening to was from 1859, and he was talking about hypocrisy, and the way he began to discuss this was he said, uh, it's so difficult in our day to distinguish what's real from what's false. People are varnishing their furniture, they're ornamenting all of their architecture. It's so difficult to discern truth from error. And I almost laughed because I thought, if he had any idea where this is going... 
You know, the day in which we live, uh, how, how difficult it is to distinguish true from false. Right? Videos, you, you can't tell with an amateur eye if a video is real or fake. We know Photoshop uh, is not something professionals do anymore. You can get a filter on your phone and look way better than you look in reality. Um, we know that, uh, that plastic surgery is doing all sorts of things to change people's appearance. Uh, AI robots, that's pretty amazing how real uh, those are becoming. Uh, these generic medicines and, and, and different products, the replicas, it's very difficult to discern all of these things. I even heard uh, recently about, uh, maybe some of you have heard of the movie Inception, and they go in, into someone's mind and they begin to implant uh, ideas into their dreams, kind of a dream architect. Uh, while the person's sleeping, bizarre stuff. They're actually dabbling with this in real life now. And um, it's just very difficult in our day to distinguish what's real, what's fake. And this is not new to our day or modern day. Uh, Even in the Gospel of John, John is continually trying to distinguish between false discipleship and true discipleship. Mainly Peter and Judas, he's contrasting back and forth. And then we see uh, even Jesus himself is continually, as all the Gospels record it, talking about this word hypocrisy as a way to show someone there are people who are fake. They think they're real, but they're not. And then there's these other people that are my disciples and they're genuine. And we need to be able to distinguish between the two. And hypocrisy is this word... Uh, Hippocrates, a mask or pretender, an actor, uh, a fake. It's the opposite of uh, Romans 12, 9, which says, let love be anapokritos, uh, without hypocrisy, without a mask. Genuine. So it's the opposite of genuine. It's ingenuine. It's fake. It's false. It's with a mask. And it comes from that Greek, uh, the Greek idea of, of mask wearing in theater. You know how in the, in the old Greek plays they would not change actors and actresses when a different scene would, would come, you would just change masks. And so the same actors would stay on stage, but they would put a happy mask or an angry mask or a sad mask. And then Paul says to the Roman church, let your love be without a mask. Let it be genuine, without hypocrisy. And John Calvin said, it is shocking how ingenious almost all men are in faking a love they really don't possess. They deceive not only others, but themselves. Which is what's amazing about hypocrisy is the really good hypocrites don't even realize they're hypocrites. They're so good at deceiving others, they've deceived themselves. And they don't even see it. And I think that's why we all need to pay attention to texts like the one before us. Like, for example, case in point, Judas. Right? Go ask Judas. Judas, are you a real disciple? Not one of the false ones, but a real one. What would Judas have said? Real? I've been following Jesus for three years. I was in the upper room. He washed my feet. What do you mean am I real? How how dare you ask me that? Right? Judas didn't see it. Many people do not recognize in themselves if they are true or false. 
And so we need to pay attention to scriptures like the one before us. There's really two things I hope we'll see in this text um, about a hypocrite. Kind of two characteristics. And I would, I would say this would be a helpful way to view both of these two points. Is that one of them is external and one of them is internal. So you can't, in other words, you can't identify a hypocrite merely by the externals. You also have to see the internals. Jesus always works in these two categories. So Matthew 23, 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside may also be clean. Hear it? Internal, external. We need both of those categories as we think through this. So here's the first thing to notice about a hypocrite. Hypocrites fear men more than they fear God. They fear men more than they fear God. And that's an internal thing. You may not see that on the outside. It's, it's very internal. Now, let's, let's see this in the text. Um, as we come to John 18, what men are there to fear in here? Let's identify some characters. So verse 19, it, it tells us about this high priest. Now, the high priest is the one who had the power and the authority and the judicial Uh, Jewish world. The high priest was the top guy. That's why all these Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees are coming to him as the authority. The high priest named here is Annas. He is the current high priest at that time. Um, However, here's what's a little confusing about the text. You also see another man, Caiaphas, who's called the high priest. And they're both called high priest by John. And so which one is it? And how this works is once you're a high priest, you're kind of always a high priest, at least in terms of your influence and your power. And so Caiaphas was the previous high priest, and it's kind of tenured. You know, you you keep that that place of authority. And so the current high priest is Annas. The influential former tenured high priest is Caiaphas. And so when they arrest Jesus, they bring him first to Annas, in the middle of the night, and then verse 24 says, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And then they're both offering a judgment and a sentence on Jesus of death. They both give Jesus the death penalty. But a a Jewish sentence of the death penalty is not sufficient. They need a a Roman death sentence. And so it says in verse 28, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. That's Roman governor's headquarters, Pilate. And so let me back off for just a second and see something here, because I think this is really important if we're going to understand this whole chapter 18 and 19, is that we understand this series of trials happening. There are six trials that Jesus is about to endure, and we're in the middle of this first and second one. So the first trial is before Annas. The second trial, this is the second Jewish trial, so we've got three Jewish trials, three religious trials to start it off. Annas, then to Caiaphas, and then to the Sanhedrin. Those are the three Jewish religious trials that Jesus has brought before. They, on the charge of blasphemy, say Jesus must die. That sentence, that that trial, those mock trials, happen at night, illegally. 
You're not supposed to do this in the middle of the night. They don't care. They do it and they sentence Jesus to death in the middle of the night and send him then to the judgment hall or what's called the praetorium, the governor's headquarters. Um, now, again, we as Americans, we don't get this stuff, but if, if a Jew's reading this, they're like, why would be Pilate or Herod even be in Jerusalem at this time? Because they would have been stationed in, uh, in a different place. Their headquarters uh, for the Roman government was not in Jerusalem, so why are Pilate or Herod even here? And during the Passover, they would send Roman governors, even a king, uh, to oversee, kind of be a government presence to make sure there were no riots or outbreaks and in, in, in Jewish uprisings that would happen at Passover because there were so many Jews coming into this area. And so Pilate and Herod are both there for this at this time. And that begins the series of three Roman trials, civic trials, that Jesus has to endure. The first before Pilate, the Roman governor, then Pilate goes, I don't see anything wrong with this man, certainly not a reason for death, sends him to Herod, Herod examines him, Herod goes, seems innocent to me, sends him back to Pilate again, and then they send him to death. So why did the Roman leaders sentenced Jesus to death. And I I would argue, fear of man. Fear of man. They did not believe him to be guilty, but they sentenced him to death anyway because they feared an outbreak or a riot from the Jews. Why did the Jewish leaders want him dead? Well, Luke 22.2 says, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death for they feared the people. Because of fear of man, they crucified Christ. So the the Romans and the Jews, both motivated by the fear of man, are seeking to put Jesus to death. That's why trial after trial is happening. That's why Jesus is being treated the way he is. These men fear men. Therefore, they are fine to kill the Son of God. Hypocrisy is always rooted in the fear of man. Jesus points this out in his ministry at a few different points. Matthew 6, 1 says, beware, Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before God? No. Before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do so that they may be praised by others. So Jesus connects hypocrisy and wanting to get praise from men. Wanting to be seen by men. And this, we know this happens in our own lives. I, I think we should be able to admit that. Certainly in the church at large, people serve And I know nobody would say this, but certainly if we would really be honest with our own hearts, many times people serve, even in the church, why? To be seen by others. There's people that showed up today, maybe because you thought, well, what if the pastors or others see that I'm not here? Fear of man. Man focus. And what does Jesus say happens when we have this hypocritical, man-centered 
approach to righteousness. He says they have received their reward. So when you have that type of hypocritical man-centered mindset, what do you get? You get the praise of man. You get a pat on the back. You get a good job. You get a whatever you're wanting. That's usually what happens. And that's all that happens. You don't get rewards in heaven. The rewards are only earthly. Jesus says, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Social media is robbing many people of heavenly rewards because they're utilizing it to get praise from man. And they will get praise from man. And people will think that they're great for all the great things we post that we do that are so great. But what are we sacrificing? You know, um, we say to our kids, uh, we quote to our kids the proverb that says, uh, let another's mouth praise you and not your own. Right? If someone praises you, they praise you. That has nothing to do with you. Don't let your heart be that you want the praise that you want the credit, that you want to be seen as righteous. That's what corrupts it. That's what turns us into hypocrites. He says, let your left hand not know what your right hand is doing, that your giving may be in secret. In other words, be childlike. When I, when I say childlike, I mean the type of pure childlikeness that's preserved from the, uh, the influences of our culture that's so narcissistic and, and, and trying to get praise from people the type of childlikeness that just goes, you ask me to clean my room, father or mother, I did it. And they don't go knock on all the neighbor's doors and post about it and try to get praise from everybody. They just wanted their father to see. What if, what if that's how we did righteousness? Lord, I didn't tell anybody what I just did there because I know you saw it and it was for you. That's not hypocritical. That's how you avoid hypocrisy. There's no hypocrisy when our, motiva- our motivation is to grab the eyes of our Father. And look, we could press this idea even a little bit further. If we were to look back at Peter, we won't go into talking about Peter again. But why did Peter deny Christ? Why did Peter sin? Fear of man. Well, it was first the fear of the servant girl who goes, do you know him? And, and, and he, why didn't, why didn't Peter say to the servant girl, do I know him? I worship him. So should you. Why did Peter say, I don't even know who he is? And then to the people while he's warming himself by the fire, and he goes, I don't know him. And then to the, per, the, the relative of Malchus that he cut off his ear that asked him, do you know him? And, and, and he denied it three times. Why did he do that? I don't think it was because he feared each of those individuals so much as he feared that they would tell the officers and he would be arrested with Jesus. But it's still fear of man. And it's hypocritical. Under Peter's hypocrisy was the fear of man. Now here's the second thing that I want us to see about hypocrites, and this is really where we'll linger, is 
Second, hypocrites put tradition over Scripture. They put tradition over the Scripture. Look at verse 28. They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Now at first glance you go, okay, that, I don't see what's wrong there. They're trying not to defile themselves so they don't want to go into the governor's headquarters because they want to eat the Passover. And they're Jews, so that's good, right? They're obeying the law. To not defile themselves so they can eat the Passover. The problem is that it, it, it does sound good initially when you first read it until you realize it's not the law. At least it's not God's law. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we find this. God's law never taught that entering into a Gentile habitation, home or building, would make someone unclean for taking the Passover. It's not in the Bible. And numerous commentators point this out. One of them said, The defilement by entrance into the house of a Gentile was not an enactment of the law, but was a purely rabbinic observance. So I can say confidently, there is no Old Testament ceremonial law that you would be unclean if you entered into a Gentile's habitation. It doesn't exist. The Jewish rabbis invented these extra laws to pull themselves away from the Gentiles. The Mishnah of codified Jewish law says, the dwelling place of Gentiles is unclean. You hear that? The, the Mishnah, the codified set of Jewish laws, that's not the Bible, said the dwelling place of Gentiles is unclean. That's their law, that's not God's law. Numbers 19 said if you touch a dead body, you're ceremonially unclean for seven days, but that's not what's happening. This is a type of racist hypocrisy that the Jews had created to keep Gentiles very far away, and it's not even biblical. And it's hard, I mean, it's very hard to comprehend this level of hypocrisy. They don't, they don't want to be defiled because of a law that they created, but they're okay with killing the Son of God on the basis of that. Their conscience are deeply bothered by defiling themselves. I might be unclean if I enter into this headquarters where Pilate is, so therefore I need to stay back here so I can eat the Passover and kill the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb. And their conscience is perfectly fine with that. Guys, this is what happens when you put traditions over Scripture. There is nothing wrong with the law of God. Paul even said the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The Old Testament law is not the problem here. God gave the Old Covenant law to Israel, especially in the Ten Commandments, and then 613 laws in the Old Testament. That was good. Jesus, a Jew, obeyed and fulfilled all those laws. He said, I came not to... Abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And woe to anyone who even lowers or relaxes one of these commands or laws. 
He's not trying to get rid of the Old Testament law. He's coming to fulfill it. And so Jesus affirmed everything in the Old Testament in his ministry. What Jesus continually is pushing back on in his ministry is the extra biblical laws. The extra Jewish laws that they added that aren't in the Bible. That's what we're dealing with here. So even in that um, about a 400 year span from Malachi to Matthew, that was a huge significant moment in Judaism where they piled in tons of extra laws into what it meant to be a Jew that were not in the Bible. And this is what they keep putting on Jesus and accusing Jesus of breaking. And this is especially true in Pharisees and in Sadducees, who both hold the Old Testament as authoritative, but Pharisees' hypocrisy is seen in their liberal bent to leave God's law and add new progressive laws. That's what the Pharisees' hypocrisy was seen in. The Sadducees' hypocrisy is seen in their conservative adherence to the law, but their desire to utilize it for power and financial gain. And so in both cases, they're modifying or changing laws or adding traditions. And it didn't take long before people couldn't tell, is this something in the Bible or is this something they added and it all just gets mixed up and nobody knows. And this is what Jesus continued to run into in his ministry over and over again. Matthew 15 is really significant. Um, Jewish leaders rebuke Jesus and they say, uh, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Which wasn't God's law. That was Jewish law that they added. And Jesus witty, so witty and sharp says, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus says, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus held nothing back in his condemnation of their extra-biblical, non-biblical traditions that they taught as doctrines. And they held nothing back from confronting Jesus, especially on issues like the Sabbath. Remember John 5? We dealt with it, this is probably six years ago when we were in John 5, but so I should probably remind us, uh, Jesus heals a crippled man. 38 years crippled, it says Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And the man gets up, takes his bed and walks, and then all the Jewish leaders said to him, what day is it? It's the Sabbath. What are you doing healing this man on the Sabbath? This is not according to the law. That's what they said to Jesus. That's their rebuke to Jesus. Guess what? Their law. Not his law. Jesus didn't violate the Sabbath. Jesus' response is threefold. First, you're condemning me for breaking your Sabbath laws, not God's. Defense two... The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Three, you don't expect God to stop working on the Sabbath, and I and the Father are always working. 
which they hated when he said that. They took it as blasphemy because they knew he was claiming to be equal with God. And so this clash isn't between Jesus and the biblical Old Testament law. The clash is between Jesus and these extra-biblical traditions of the Jews. It's very important we see that. And it's very important that I make a connection to our day, or a little bit before our day as well. Uh, this, is, this is literally identical to what the Roman Catholic Church has done. with all their extra-biblical traditions. Not believing faith in Christ alone is enough for salvation that one must pray to Mary as the merciful intercessor instead of Christ. Venerating the Pope who has authority to continue to make new laws and doctrines and stances on morality. You know, it's interesting, a lot of people enter into Catholicism every day. I mean, it's a massive influx of people. It's not a dying, you know, uh, faith. Catholicism is quickly growing, and one of the main reasons people enter into Catholicism is they say, it's so solid, it's so historic, it's so unchanging, really. Except for all the things the Pope keeps changing and all the councils keep changing. It's unbelievable how much change has happened in the Catholic Church. And the celebration of the Mass that completely ignores the once and for all sacrifice of Christ, but wants to, in the drink and in the bread, re-crucify Christ. Week after week after week. At Eucharist, where they re-crucify Christ. There's so many, so many heresies, so many false things that are being done, and in this sense, the reformers are quite Christ-like in their efforts to call people back to sola scriptura, Scripture alone. We don't need the Pope to change things. We have God's Word. We don't need to add all of these extra things to Christ's work. His work on the cross was sufficient. Faith in Christ alone. It's, I mean, guys, it, it, when you study church history, you just get depressed because you realize it was like a thousand years. People are nearly illiterate, even many of the priests, and all they had was the traditions being told to them verbally by people who had no idea, who were told by people who had no idea. And then when we finally, people start getting Bibles again, they start realizing, wish someone would have said it, we had no idea we were, right? It, it's It's unbelievably saddening and tragic. And so the reformers to call people back to sola scriptura, Christ alone, we don't need the Pope or some council or anyone to tell us or to change what God has given us. You know, J.I. Packer said it this way. He said, it was the Puritans that took the Reformation principle of sola scriptura and began to apply it to all of life, especially the local church. And if I could be so bold as to say, that's our tradition. To subject all traditions to Scripture. Our tradition is to subject all traditions to Scripture. Our Reformed Baptist heritage is to question everything and say, 
Is it biblical? Everybody has a tradition. I'm going to say that in just a second. Our tradition is to question every tradition and ask, is it biblical? And let me back off this for just one second. Um, me and Priscilla, so y'all know we're going to Brazil soon. Um, and uh, we, we, we have family there. We're going to minister to some churches there. And um, we haven't been in about three years. This is a very different trip because the churches have been very harmed in Brazil in the last three years. Uh, if I could put it at the feet of the COVID restrictions and all the things that have happened in light of that, I, I'm going to do that. From the best of my vantage point, from where I'm at, it seems that many have held the recommendations of uh, a government over the commands of God to gather, and those churches are in bad shape. And it's hard for me to get this. I ask Priscilla, I just don't understand. I don't, I don't get it. And she's like, you're not going to understand, Jamark, you're an American. You, y'all don't think the same. Your country is birthed in rebellion. <laughs> That's how you are a country, because you questioned the authorities, the, the government authorities that told you you can't worship this way. That's how, that's how America started. So we, this is deep in us. And then I was thinking about, we've got like four layers of this in, in our kind of culture as a church. We've got the fact that we're Americans. We've got the fact that we're Reformed, pushing against the Catholic Church and Protestant. We've got the fact that we're Baptists, which were separatists and rebels viewed throughout church history. And we've got the fact that we're associated with the Puritans, which were rebellious culturally and morally from their day. It's like four layers of rebellion, making us continually look at the Scriptures and go, is it biblical? That, that is our tradition. And I, what, here's what we have to be careful of. Using, we, we must use Scripture to criticize tradition, not tradition to criticize tradition. Let me say that again. We must use Scripture to criticize tradition, not tradition to criticize tradition. Many Baptists show up at our church and go, why don't they do youth group and kids groups? I've always been in Baptist churches that did youth group and kids groups. Why don't they do that? Or they say, why do they take the Lord's Supper every week? I've never seen a Baptist church take the Lord's Supper every week. Or, or Baptists show up and go, why don't they do an altar call at the end and have people repeat a prayer? I've always been in Baptist churches that do that. What is that? That's tradition criticizing tradition. The newer Baptist traditions might not do these things. Go study the old Baptist tradition. Many, many don't realize that a lot of modern Baptist traditions find their origin in the 60s and 70s, 1960s and 70s. And so if you just take a little bit older 1950s, 1940s, 1930s, and you begin to question the 1960s traditions, you begin to go, the way we worship, it kind of looks like the old Baptists. We don't do certain things because we question new traditions with old traditions and all traditions to Scripture. And listen, I'm going to just... 
I'm going to ask you if you would please, because I don't want to be a hypocrite in even preaching this. There are, there most definitely are probably blind spots. Things that we don't see, that we think we're doing that are biblical, and maybe they're not. And so, use this principle on our own church to say, is everything we're doing according to Scripture or not? Are we just doing things to do them? Are we just doing traditions that are not rooted in Scripture? I, I invite you and please do this for our church. And guys, everybody follows traditions. I know there's probably some of you sitting there going, all this tradition, Baptist, Puritan, Reform, you know, I don't, I don't do traditions. Everybody does traditions. Pastor Kent grew up in the charismatic church. And he was telling me the other day, we were talking, and he goes, we had tons of traditions. The tradition was to kind of do whatever the Spirit led. That's the tradition. <laughs> it's a very subjective chaotic type of tradition that can lead in some weird places, but it's a tradition. Everybody has traditions. And Paul seemed to be concerned, the Apostle Paul, at least in the church in Corinth, that their traditions were a little chaotic. Therefore, he said, let all things be done decently and in order. So he's teaching the churches, you need to have traditions, but they need to be rooted in the Scripture. And they need to be at least orderly enough where that if somebody comes in, they're edified and they're not thinking you're doing something utterly crazy. Let me bring all this back to our text. Verse 28, it says, They did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. It's not Old Testament law. That's their own tradition. And even worse, and we'll look at this more next week, verse 38 and 39, Pilate, after examining the charges brought against Jesus, says, listen, I find no guilt in Him, but you have a custom. I find no guilt in Him, but you have a custom. I find no guilt in Him. But you have a what? A custom. Kill Jesus. Do you hear what happens when we put tradition over Scripture? What is the cure for hypocrisy? I love this. Every, every child in the room should be able to get this one right. What is the cure for hypocrisy? It's Jesus. Jesus is the cure for hypocrisy. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. What is he saying? He's saying, who's the hypocrite here? You're meeting in secret, illegally, to arrest me, to try me unjustly. I've taught openly. Who's the hypocrite? And we know they got it 
what he was saying because he got a strike in the face as soon as he said it. It was at that pushback about their hypocrisy and his lack of hypocrisy that got him a blow to the face. He exposed their hypocrisy. He did not fear men. He did not ignore the commands of God. We'll end on verse, this last portion here. Verse 29, Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. <laughs> What's your grounds to kill Jesus? Well, you think we're just going to put him before you? If he hasn't done something evil? Like, who do you think we are? We're not going to just do that. But they don't say anything. <laughs> Pilate said to them, Take him back. Judge by your own law. Pilate's a good judge in this regard. He is an actual judge. He has a just system in which he's working off of it. And he goes, there's no, there's no grounds to, to kill Jesus. Take him back and judge him by your own law. And they say, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. They wanted the Roman government to do it. And so Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin are hypocrites who fear men. Therefore, they killed Jesus. Pilate and Herod fear men knowing Jesus is innocent and that there's no justifiable or legal grounds to kill him, they still kill him. And it says in verse 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken by what kind of death he was going to die. Uh, an unjust death at the hands of Roman and Jewish hypocrites. And by the way, we're not much different. There's a lot more hypocrisy in us than we would care admit. Church, please hear me. Jesus wasn't just killed by hypocrites. Jesus was killed for hypocrites. Even those in this room and as we go to the table, we need to think about the fact that we are far less consistent and faithful to Christ than we think we are. And thankfully, Christ died for hypocrites, even in this room, and His blood is enough to cleanse us and to restore us and to purify us. Let's pray. Father, Lord, left to ourself, we are like these men. We're like the Jews, we're like the Romans, Lord. We're not this righteous category standing perfectly aligned with Christ. We are more like the hypocrites in this text than we are like the pure and innocent Son of God. And so... Lord, help us to decrease and for You to increase. Lord, we pray all of our inconsistencies, hypocritical things that we do during the week that we don't even realize oftentimes, forgive us for those. And Lord, we pray that we would be a people who would test everything we do to Scripture and make sure 
that we're doing what You have called us to do and not what men expect us to do. And so God, give us this heart that was in Your Son. And we pray we could live like this for His glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.